Father God, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ, spoken to us in your word. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive as we reflect on those words now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as, uh, as I've been discussing with several of you already this morning, um, I was away on holiday last week, uh, and uh, I did complain about the weather once or twice, I have to confess, while I was away. It was all right. It was better than it could have been. I think it was better than it was in Leicester, so I should probably be grateful for, for what we got. Um, some of you may remember the 2nd of June, 1975. You probably don't remember the date um, specifically, um, but that was a June day when much of England faced sleet and snow. Uh, when it was lying on the hills to the Ron is nodding here, to, lying on the hills to the south of Birmingham. And when, a, sorry, you were at a wedding uh, and uh, there was a county cricket match um, interrupted by um, snow stopping play on that June day. Uh, I don't know what it did for the wedding. You'd think you were safe if you planned it in June, wouldn't you? Uh, on the other hand, maybe, um, and I do remember this one, remember the 30th of October 2011. That was shortly after we'd moved to Leicester. And the uh, temperatures in Leicester that day reached 29 degrees C. And we've got photographs of um, our children wandering around in the garden in swimming costumes and bare feet eating ice creams um, a couple of days before November was due to come around. It does feel a bit strange sometimes when things are out of season, doesn't it? And I say that because maybe that's what you feel as we're reading these passages in Luke at the moment. Uh, and certainly this one that we, we read this morning. Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane that we associate, for obvious reasons, with the week leading up to Easter. I want to suggest, though, as we, we're focusing on this part of Luke over the, these weeks of the, of the summer, we've got a bit of an opportunity that we, in many ways, don't really get when we look at these at Easter. There's so much in this story, isn't there? And there's only so many services that people can come to between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And so most of the time, we, we only have a chance just to touch on what is going on in that last week of Jesus' life. And so we've got this opportunity to look in a little bit more depth as we engage with Jesus' final words to his disciples, his final actions in Jerusalem. And today, particularly to engage with two big questions for the Christian faith, perhaps the biggest ones. Why did Jesus die? And who was responsible for his death? Whose fault was it? I wonder, if, if I put you on the spot and said to you now, who killed Jesus? What would you say? What would you say? There's a bunch of possible answers, I reckon, there. Um, you might point the finger at the religious authorities who were you know, campaigning to have him killed in Jerusalem. You might point your finger at Judas here in the passage, mightn't you? Jesus' friend who betrayed him. Uh, maybe you'd go for Pontius Pilate. He was the one, I guess, who had the power to make a decision uh, in those days, wasn't he? Or perhaps you'd have to say it was the soldiers, because they were the ones who physically nailed him to the cross. And all of those would be true. They all bear some responsibility, don't they, for what happened. But of course, as Christians, we know, don't we, that none of those tell the whole story, because... There are two other things that need to be said if we want to understand the death of Jesus. The first one is that Jesus died because it was his will. It was his decision. And we see that in the first part of our reading today, don't we? 
his decision to go to the cross. The second, which we'll come back to in a moment, is that he died because of you and because of me. Uh, Not just for Pilate, not just because of Judas, because of the actions of the priests and the soldiers, but because of all human rebellion against God, including mine and including yours. It was Jesus' decision and it was our responsibility. Both of those are true, according to the Bible, according to what Jesus says. And we see both of these things here on page 1058, if you can just keep it open for a few minutes, as we find Jesus in the garden on the Mount of Olives and then being arrested. Uh, In a moment, we'll see that his death was necessary because of what we've done. But first of all, Jesus' death was deliberate. It was willing, uh, and in it, he was taking our place. Let's just read those first um, couple of verses again. Verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Clearly a place where he went to pray. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. And then we come to the verse which is central to, I think, the whole of this section. It's verse 42. There is Jesus in the garden, praying on his own, knowing what lies before him in the near future now. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Why does Jesus pray that? Familiar words, of course, to us, aren't they? Well, first of all, he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Uh, We know he means his death, don't we? And uh, like most people, I guess, when it comes to the point of death, Jesus would prefer to avoid what is in front of him. It's not something to look forward to, is it? And he's honest with his father. If there's any way to remove this, then please, will you? But there is more than that going on here. It's not just that Jesus doesn't want to die. He prays, take this cup from me. What is this cup? Why does he speak like that? Well, there can be no doubt that he's speaking about the cup of the Lord's wrath here. God's anger at the sin of humankind. The judgment which is about to be poured out on Jesus. And we know this because this is what cup means in the Bible again and again in this sort of context. You can find it in the Psalms. I won't read all of these references to you. Psalm 75 um, speaks of the wicked of the earth drinking the Lord's cup down to its very dregs. You can find it in the prophets, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. Um, Here's one example, Isaiah 51. Rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who, who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. And we find it right at the very end of the Bible in in Revelation, chapter 14, speaking of those who worship the beast, drinking the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What we've got here is the Son of God facing the full force of the judgment of God against sin, knowing what that means and quite understandably filled with dread at the prospect. Verse 42 is a painful verse to read, isn't it? And so it ought to be, because it's one of those verses that brings out for us something of the cost, something of the length to which Jesus was willing to go 
because of his love for his people. It's what it cost Jesus to deal with the consequences of our rejection of God as he flinches at the thought of facing the cup of God's anger. By the way, said this before, um, but we don't really like speaking of God's anger, do we? His wrath. I don't know about, um, about you, but it just makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. God is a God of love, isn't he? And we need to remember whenever we, we read of God's anger or his wrath in the Bible that God doesn't lose his temper. He, he never loses his temper. His anger is not like mine or yours. He doesn't lash out at the innocent. When the Bible speaks of God's anger at sin, it means God's fixed, settled opposition to everything in the world which is not as it should be, which is not right and good. And we want a God like that, don't we? A God who judges wisely and rightly. That's a good thing. A God who looks at the terrible things that happen in the world. I wonder what springs to your mind when I say that. There are so many things we could think of, aren't there? And who says, no, that is not good. That is not right. He hates those things. He hates the mistreatment of the vulnerable. He hates uh, violence against those who are suffering. So imagine a God who didn't care. And when Jesus says, take this cup from me, there is no doubt that he's referring to the cup of God's anger, his judgment on all that is wrong. And of course, in case we're in any doubt that this is what Jesus is talking about, it's just picking up the theme which we've seen over the last chapter or so, isn't it, really? Um, A couple of weeks ago, um, we were reading about Jesus sharing that, that Passover meal with his friends, weren't we? And saying to them, this is my body given for you. Jesus preparing to die, that substitutionary death in their place. And if you just glance back to verse 37, which you had in last week's reading, We've got Jesus speaking about his death, quoting from Isaiah chapter 53. It is written, and he was numbered among the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. And if you go to that great passage in Isaiah 53 and read the whole thing, we see that it also says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. So there is Jesus kneeling there, praying in the garden, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. He's saying much more than I'm scared of dying. He's recoiling because he knows he's about to face the full force of God's righteous judgment on human sin. All the terrible things that we see in our world and all the the terrible things that we store up in our own hearts. That's what this cup means. And it's why he's in such an agony A couple of verses later, sweating those drops of blood. Not just physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. The Son of God who knows what he is about to face. It works like this. If I drink a cup of water, I've got a bit too much in here, so you'll have to bear with me. But I do need one after the first half of a sermon. When the water's gone... I can't give it to you to finish off, can I? Because I've drunk it. It's gone. It's finished. It can't be drunk again. Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath. He's doing it so there is nothing left for you to drink and nothing left for me to drink. So that on the last day, when you stand before the throne of heaven and when you find yourself faced 
with God on his throne and the consequences of, of everything that you've done, including all the many things that you wouldn't want to tell us all about this morning, the things which you're rightly ashamed of, what will you find if you're trusting in Jesus? That the cup of God's wrath towards you is empty. There is nothing left because Jesus has drunk it right down and there is no penalty left for you. That's why as he dies, he cries out, it's finished. Praise the Lord. And it's why the Book of Common Prayer lays it on so thick. Um, if you're used to the, the more traditional words of the communion service, we'll use some of them later on in our service today. It doesn't leave any room, does it, for those who sometimes wonder, was Jesus' death really enough to deal with our sin? Where it says that Jesus Christ offered a full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. There's no wiggle room in those words, is there? It's saying to us, he's covered it all, full, sufficient, complete, perfect. Jesus is doing all that is needed. That's why we're here this morning, to give thanks and to celebrate. But it was a terrible price to pay. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. And of course, he then continues, yet, not my will, but your will be done. And this takes us right back to what I said at the beginning, because yes, Judas was guilty. Yes, Pilate was guilty. All those soldiers, all those religious leaders. But primarily, Jesus is dying because he's being obedient to his father's will. And he is going to the cross willingly. The cross was not a tragedy, not in the sense that something's gone wrong. It wasn't a plan B. Oh dear, my original plan didn't work. We're going to have to try something else now. No, this is Jesus fulfilling everything that he's planned, everything that God has planned since the beginning of time, fulfilling the Passover, fulfilling the law of Moses, fulfilling the song of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Deliberate, willing, and taking our place. He chose to die. And then secondly, and a bit more briefly, Jesus died, and it was necessary because of our rebellion in verses 47 to 53. Um, I suspect one of the real problems we sometimes face as Christians when we want to communicate the gospel today is that most people don't think they need God's forgiveness. Have you ever found that? I'm basically a good person. That's what a lot of people say, isn't it? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said that. I'm not a bad person. I'm an okay guy. And like most plausible falsehoods, it's got more than a grain of truth to it. Because yes, we do try to be kind and generous much of the time, don't we? We do good things. All of us have, I'm sure, done some wonderful things in our lives. As we should. We're made in God's image to reflect his glory. But it's easy then to pat ourselves on the backs and say, well, well done. You know, I'm, not, I'm not like that terrorist. I'm not like that criminal over there. But at the same time, when it comes to standing before the throne of God... Which of us can hold up our heads and claim that we are good? When was the last time, I wonder, you spoke sharply to someone? When was the last time you allowed selfish anger to boil up inside you? When was the last time you allowed ungodly thoughts free reign in your mind? When did you choose the pleasures that the world has to offer rather than the harder option of following Jesus? We all do these things, don't we? We do good things, 
but maybe not quite as good as we would like to think. Look in verses 47 and 48. Here is one of Jesus' closest associates coming to betray him. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, Jesus says? It's a tough choice, isn't it, for Judas? Follow Jesus to his death or take the 30 pieces of silver the world is offering him right now. Which is easier? It's always tempting to choose the now option, isn't it? The world's option. Judas is a warning to those who want to be in with Jesus but don't want to stand with Jesus when the going gets tough. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. Again, it's hard not to sympathize, isn't it? I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to get a sword out in those circumstances, or accurate enough. Maybe he wasn't going for the ear, I don't know. But there's a temptation, isn't there? Maybe I would have tried to inappropriately stand up for Jesus but then just get it all wrong, trying to take things into my own hands and do them my way. Deciding what to do on the basis of what I think will get a result rather than on the basis of what is right. And of course, there's an irony here, isn't there, of someone trying to defend Jesus with a sword as if the Son of God really needs defending. Again, it's not a physical battle, so Jesus says to those who've come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple but you didn't lay a hand on me. See, not in public, only in the dead of night when no one's watching in this lonely place. Jesus says, this is your hour when darkness reigns. It is a spiritual concept, uh, conflict, and those who oppose Jesus are not just arresting a man, but standing in opposition to the plans of God. They don't know it, but like everyone else in human history, they're placing themselves at risk of God's right and correct judgment. And all of this is why it was necessary for Jesus to drink that cup of God's wrath. And despite all that he's facing, despite every temptation to take a different path, what does Jesus do? Verse 51, he says, no more of this. He touches the man's ear and he heals him. Jesus is loving his enemies right to the end, isn't he? Even those who hate him and have come to arrest him. Well, sadly, those who come to arrest Jesus, as far as we can tell, remain defiant against him, despite his grace and his gentleness. The rest of his disciples will soon flee. Even Peter will disown him, as we'll see next week. He's left on his own, and faithfully, he heads to the cross to bear the judgment of God in our place. Who was responsible for his death? Well, as I could see several of you saying to yourselves when I asked that question at the beginning, it's all of us, isn't it? We may not be as bad as some people. We may not even be as bad as we could be. But we miss Jesus' standards time and time again. Why did Jesus die? He died because it was his choice to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. So that people like you and me might know an even greater life than we can imagine. Having life and hope instead of darkness and death. Judas did what he decided to do under the cover of darkness. Will we publicly acknowledge Jesus in the light so that the world knows he is the most important person in history and in our lives?